0: You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Scott Tannen, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: You're the CEO of Bull & Branch. I think people who listen to this probably have heard of Bull & Branch, but how do you describe it? Bowling Branch is
1: a ethical and sustainable manufacturer and retailer of uh, luxury home goods. Um, that's a bit of a mouthful. The truth is, we started as a bedsheets brand. And, and what made us different was the fact that my wife, Missy, who's my co-founder and I, we didn't have any background in the textiles category. So we just built the type of products and the type of company that that we wanted to be a part of. Um, and someone else along the way said, hey, by the way, you're sustainable. Um, and we said, great, we'll take it. But But that's what we are.
0: Now I wanted to ask you about that detail of starting a, a company with your wife. You've been at it now for seven or eight years. How has that changed over time? How How does it feel now?
1: Uh, you know, it's it still largely feels the same. And and look, my relationship with Missy is is. Uh, I mean, I guess everybody's relationship with their spouse is unique. Um, Missy and I met as nineteen year old college kids at Vanderbilt. And so we have been together way more than half of our lives. Um I think if I'm doing the math correctly, but I'm not positive, uh, but yeah, yeah, we're we're over <laughs> half of our lives. Um, and And so, you know, we've both grown up together as much as we've built a family and 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 all of that stuff. And Bowling Branch is just sort of, you know, something that symbolizes this chapter of our lives where our kids are, are in school. My oldest daughter, Sophie, is a junior in high school. And my twins, Brooke and Haley, are eighth graders. Um, when we started Bowling Branch, you know, even our little guys were, were in school. So it's always been something that's just been a part of our lives and fit into our lives. Now, you know, a lot of people can say, I visualize the success. I visualize where we would be. The truth is, anybody that says that is probably lying or an egomaniac. We had no idea that Bolin Branch would, would turn into what it's turned into. We were just hoping that even our family would buy the stuff. As the organization's grown and the company's grown, we have nearly 80-plus you know, people uh, in our headquarters at this point our top job or my top job is setting the, the standards within the culture. And Missy still looks after the design of every single product we make. And, and I think when you have those strong anchors in a way that we're not really competitive with each other, it's not like one of us is trying to figure out if she doesn't want to be the CEO and I couldn't design something if my life depended on it. Um, so it's a really nice balance in that regard. And, and I think that, you know, look, we're lucky in, in that Bowling branch has been really successful and, and sharing that success with the person who, you know, everything in your life revolves around is as rewarding as it gets.
0: Yeah, that's great. It seems like I've seen more companies be started by couples recently. I don't know if that's just kind of anecdotal, but people often ask me about how to pick a co-founder. <laughs> and my I have no advice for that because my co-founder, Jesse, is, you know, we were, we were friends for a long time. And I think that like high trust is one of like, is probably the number one thing. And so with a spouse, that's like a lot easier. But then I think the challenge with that is like setting up the right boundaries. And has that, have you figured out how to do that and the work-life balance of, of it all?
1: Yeah, I mean, we try to, right? And and I think that one of the things that we've realized is we don't fight it um, in, in terms of there are times when work and life blend together. And I think that if, if you allow those moments to cause friction, because you're dealing with regret, you're dealing with with those sorts of things, it can be a struggle. Now, our story is a little different in that Bowen Branch is not my first startup. Missy was a third grade teacher and then home with our kids. And so my last company, a company called Fun Tank in the gaming space where I did have a co-founder, but um, we are not related. And for her sitting on the outside as we were going through the process of exiting or or different challenges we faced within the business, I think in many regards put more strain on our relationship because Mm. there was just a lot of nonsense that as a founder, as you know, you bring home with you every day. And when you bottle that up because you want to just sort of not think about it or move on And and lose yourself in what the kids are doing or what the family's doing or what you're doing with your friends. You know, your spouse has the feeling of of feeling a little bit left out. Or in in Missy's case, I think she would know. Like, I know Scott's super stressed, but I don't understand why. Or Scott said he's got to basically punt the weekend because he's got to deal with this, this, or this. and, And she doesn't quite have the context. So I think that working together and where she has the same context I do... In many cases, it's her like working around the clock on on deadlines with manufacturing and things like that. You know, just to know that all right, I got to pick up the slack with the kids and we have plans with friends, but you know, Missy's going to bail and I might do it anyway or, or whatever it happens to be. There's no spite there. There's no like. There's none of that frustration.
0: Going to that idea of you know this is not your first company. What were some of the things that you? You know, when you have the opportunity to start with a clean slate, what were the the key pillars of that that you really wanted to do, or or things that you felt you never wanted to do again?
1: Uh, don't have a co-founder to your prior point, point. Um, <laughs> and I love my co-founder from Fun Tank, but you know, one of the things I had said leaving is that I'm never going to have a co-founder again, and and the reason is is that you know when when you are driven enough to start a company, um, which to me is a proxy for the ultimate. Betting on yourself, right? Of just believing that that either you can do what nobody else has been able to do, or you have an idea that, that you think is just better than the status quo, and then you want to lean on yourself and challenge yourself to do it. And I think that there's a certain amount of independence that a lot of entrepreneurs, me being one of them, really wants in that decision making process, and and so. When you have internal negotiations with a co-founder, I found that to be one of the more challenging aspects of my last business.
0: How do you think of Missy then, as if not as your co-founder? How do you think of her? Well, we're rowing
1: in the same boat and in the yeah. same direction to a great extent, you know. And, and let me let me use an example. I think I think one of the places that this really bears itself is around personnel and and, and teams there are times when there were personal relationships between my co-founder and employees that may not have been up to standard, right? And you have the, you know, when you have a co-founder, somebody can cry to one or, or cry to the other. And, and it becomes very difficult as a leadership unit, whether you're individual or you're multiple people, to be like what you would think of as a line of one, right? With, with really lockstep. And that's the thing is that Missy and I are more lockstep than I could be with any other human being on earth. You know that's maybe unique to our relationship, but but I think that's worked, and the level of consistency then that my team feels from us, from everything, from the values that we hold true to ourselves, and how that reflects our expectations within the business, down to our ambition, right? Because fortunately or unfortunately, Missy and I don't turn off Bull and Branch very often, but what that means is that when we are in front of our team and we are working, you know, either separately or together with members of the team, especially in COVID, where, where everybody's sort of on their own little Zoom calls, knowing that we have that complete lockstep alignment, it's not a stressor to either of us, and it doesn't create a stressor to the team.
0: Early on, it seemed like you made a, a strong point to raise as little capital as possible. What was your thinking behind that? Did that come from your previous startup?
1: Um, I had bootstrapped that one as well. I think that one of the the most undervalued virtues of a of a of an entrepreneur is patience, right? And and I think as society in general, we don't really celebrate patience relative to business building. Mm, Read shoe dogs. Phil Knight is patient, right? Learn about Patagonia, patience uh, with the Chinard family. And and so there's something to be said that when you start taking the drug that is venture investment or any sort of early stage investment, your top objective at that point becomes providing a return to those obje- those investors and even if you don't operate that way then you're a fool you know when when we got started i really believed strongly that that i wanted to build the best business i can and something that really does stand the test of time and and i'll i'll, I'll dive in even a little bit personally so my dad was very very successful and unfortunately he passed away young he passed away like a week before i graduated college and i look at you know what he did and one of the things that that he's probably best known for is he actually brought adidas to this country in the, in the early 80s and built up adidas USA. And then he also worked in in a number of smaller businesses and, and things like that. And when I look at some of the smaller businesses that he even IPO'd and things like that, none of them exist anymore. But there's a lasting element of a brand like adidas that that still exists and and so, you know, it, it's it's a little bit like like you know, building Mount Rushmore, right? The, we're going to have a meteor hit this planet and that thing's still going to be there. And somebody in the future is going to figure out what the hell is this who are these guys, right? And and so there's a transiency that exists within the startup world today, which is I'm going to raise as much money as possible. And, and from the investment standpoint, I want you to deploy that money as fast as possible because then I'm going to live to the next round or the next round or the next round. And ultimately what you have, and I don't have to even call the companies out by name, but you have a lot of companies that even IPO or or suddenly have these just spectacular flameouts where it's like, wait, these guys were doing four hundred million dollars in sales, and now their stocks, you know, a third. The founders made no money. The employees are underwater because all their options sat underneath preference from all these investors. Like, and and you know, five years later, they went from like the talk of the industry to nobody in the industry gives a shit about them anymore. And so. That to me is like it's a transience and something I didn't want to be a part of, and and I realized that the sooner you take money, um, and look, I'm lucky. I was able to self fund this out of my pocket. Not that I didn't, and I did. I had like five mortgages on this house, and so I I definitely bet on myself and and went all in on it. But I was never beholden to anybody else's timetable. Uh, We were able to do things the right way. We built a good business with strong unit economics. We hired slowly. And we charted our own path forward. And I believe if we didn't do that, I don't know that Bowen Branch would stand here today in quite the same shape that it's in.
0: Do you think it ever does make sense for brands in the direct-to-consumer area to be raising VC or like what's the reasonable version of that for, for other founders or other types of product categories?
1: Well, I, I, I think in other categories, like when you start talking about technology and, and things like that, where you know, the, the multiple is outsized. The truth of the matter is a retail business, it's going to always transact at two to three times forward looking revenue. It doesn't matter how you cut it. And you might have some outlying super brands that that get anointed in the raise process. And when they're raising outside of that, they've suddenly put themselves in debt. They just didn't realize it. And so, you know, I think there's something to be said around optionality when when it comes to, you know, raising capital. And look, raising capital is is not a bad thing. It's raising too much that's the problem, or getting into a spot where you raise capital with the expectation that you deploy it immediately. And now you're addicted to the drug of, you know, your your cash flow and your business doesn't fund your growth. You you are relying on outside sources. And that's not even a business at that point. But look, I think there's a lot of really interesting ways to fund a business, right? That that that's different. I think debt is people don't talk enough about debt. I mean, the SBA has a lot of great programs, and I did. I had five SBA loans. Those were the five mortgages collateralizing my house. Um, You know that that I was able. Yes, there was a personal guarantee and all of those things. And I'm lucky that I did have a house to collateralize and all of that stuff. But the truth is, you know, you're talking four or five percent money and, and equity. Raising is twenty twenty five percent money, right? So, so it's a much lower cost of capital, and you have the benefit if you have strong economics, you pay it off, and you still own your whole business. So, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> well, well I, I, you know, there, I I do think it's an interesting. I mean, you you touched a little bit on the idea that maybe in some other spaces or industries. Yeah, the multiples are higher. Maybe the the costs of developing a unique product are higher. Perhaps uh, there there might be some categories that, that fit into that. But that's
1: so that's a great example of like what's the use of
0: proceeds going to be? And and so
1: when use of proceeds is, you know, listen, I I I need a large amount of money to productize my business. Right, I have to actually go out and and you know do the tooling and build a factory or whatever it happens to be. Um, all of that makes perfect sense to raise money against, and it's exactly what equity in the business should align to, right? If you're raising equity dollars, you should you should be investing it into things that build equity. The truth is, people put it into three areas that are killers, right? Which is marketing and advertising, personnel, and then you know things like office space and, and general operating expenses. Those are transient costs and dollars that you never get back. There is no return on most of those dollars. Or even in the case of personnel, typically the return on those dollars is way out, right? So so you're investing that money and you you need to make sure that you're holding back enough capital to bridge yourself. But that's invariably, and you know, being in the industry, what happens, right? A lot of money goes into advertising, money goes into personnel. The dollars don't come back to the bottom line fast enough. So that there needs to be another race to sort of quote unquote. Oh, we're just going to bridge until we turn profitable. We're going to bridge until we do this and until we do that. And that's where the whole system goes inside out, and where retailers are really, especially DTC brands. There are very few brands that, and I've seen all the decks. Right, they they all get they all fall out of trucks, and you see them all, and it's amazing. The story is always the same. Like here's where we are. Here's the bar graph, and it starts getting bigger. And look, in year three, we start becoming profitable because suddenly. Our margins improve, or this improves, or that improves. And it never, ever happens. It never happens. So if you had a time machine for those folks, they don't raise the money. Get your operation right and do it slowly and smartly.
0: I do want to ask about you know your point of view on on the state of the e-commerce world at the moment. If you flash back, if we can remember that far back to <laughs> January, I think before the whole world got shaken up like a snow globe, I think that there is a healthy amount of pessimism, I, I think, that was going on very much related to what you're describing about, mm-hmm. you know, some of the disappointment around some acquisitions and IPOs. Um, but at the same time, I do think that we tend to talk in the inside baseball of, of, of direct to consumer about, you know, th- 30 to 50 brands that come up while the industry is much bigger than that. There's, there's many more bootstrapped companies than, than venture-funded companies. And I guess, I don't know where we stand exactly on, I, don't, I think the narrative has been subsumed by everything else that's going on in the world. How do you feel direct-to-consumer and e-commerce broadly is doing at the moment?
1: You know, I, I think that the concerns people had in January just because if you're a DTC business and your business isn't up significantly, you have massive problems, right? Everybody, you don't have to be that smart. You just have to exist. And and your business is doing as well as can be expected in most categories, not all, but, but or I'll say many categories. The truth is that the the, the emperor didn't really actually even change his clothes, right? The same problems exist in some sort of normalization that's going to happen. And what, if you really poke and prod at a lot of businesses, the ones that have really moved heavily into brick and mortar, right? There's a struggle there. It's a balance sheet struggle. So their DTC business is healthy, but it might be offset by, you know, just the, the, the systematic lack of health that, that exists. But I think what's interesting it had to me has been when I look at the bigger businesses in, in all spaces, right? From the Bed Bath & Beyonds to even Nordstrom and Macy's and, and folks like that how fast they've operationalized themselves as DTC business, how much smarter they're getting from a customer acquisition standpoint, how their go-to-market strategy no longer makes them look old relative to a lot of the DTCs. I think that that's something that hasn't been discussed as as much as it should. You know, As somebody said, I remember in the early summer of saying like, gosh, you know, e-commerce in general has gained five years of traction in the last three or four months and and I think that's true. you know when you're seeing a lot of these big companies that have been as nimble as they've been, it's pretty amazing. and then you look at a Wayfair or somebody like that, right that has always been sort of a little bit of an outlier to the core you know compared to an IKEA or somebody like that. I mean you just read their public statements their business is on absolute fire because they were positioned really really well. But it's slowing because all of a sudden, Ikea and everybody else is actually catching up to them and have caught up to them super fast. So it's, I think there's a really interesting dynamic out there.
0: So are, so what you're saying is that maybe COVID has forced some of those more traditional players to like move faster with their e-commerce strategy. And that's where a lot of the whatever gains the e-commerce uh, market has had, a lot of those are going to some of those traditional players. Yeah, I I think that's one way to put it. Let me let me even take it in a
1: little bit different direction. What you have in many DTC brands is the only reason they exist is they exist as a cool, you know, and I say cool in the most superficial fashion because that's how they built their brand, like a cool alternative to the established players, but no real differentiation from a product standpoint or, you know, in terms of what they offer the customer. They were just a, hey, we'll quote unquote cut out the middleman, but they weren't really even doing that. So I think what what suddenly happened is you have a lot of these bigger brands that have had to immediately lean hard on on direct-to-consumer. And they're benefiting by the fact that they have built over 50 years, 40 years, this trusted brand status with consumers. And so now what do the DTCs really stand for? Because when you start comparing them point to point, the prices may not actually be that much better anymore. You know they can't keep up with these brands from a media and advertising standpoint. Look, as you're seeing now, I mean, if you spend five minutes on on Instagram, you know, given where CPMS are, was a result of the election and and this holiday push, you're seeing a lot more traditional brands spending heavy, heavy, heavy than you ever have before. And I think that's going to be a big challenge for a lot of a lot of small
0: DTCs. And if you if you put your investor hat on, um, if you were you've done some angel investing, right? A ton. Yeah. Okay. And what, what is attracting you or what are the areas that you're looking at?
1: I'm, I'm very intrigued by by health and human services. Um, I've been intrigued for a while, but I think that technology and technology innovation in everything from at the household level to the, the larger scale, I, I find it very intriguing, right? It, it's an area that you know, when you look at where this country was in March, we were brought to our knees and afraid to leave our house because mm-hmm. of COVID. And, and to a certain extent, we still are, right? And and so at some point, I, I hope and pray that, you know, COVID in and of itself is is not going to be something that we all see as the threat that, that it is at the moment, just to our way of life, our society, our, our parents, and, you know, those who have compromised immune systems and all of those things. But I think COVID is, and and the fact that it did bring us to our knees, is a pretty interesting case study in the fact that we as as society have not been well productized towards safety, uh, towards h- real human health and those sorts of things. We focused a lot on environmental health. We focused a lot on on you know personal enjoyment and things like that. But but with all this innovation that's come into into you know the marketplace in the last. 10 years, 15 years, we ran out of Purell and toilet paper. And once we did that, people literally cowered in the corner, right? There's got to be a way to solve it. And there are a lot of smart people out there that are working on it. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by, by some of the ideas.
0: What would an e-commerce or product or like physical product oriented uh, startup have to do to get your attention at this point?
1: They've got to be doing something really different than, you know, it's not good enough. To simply be an alternative to the status quo, you've got to be an improvement on the status quo. And you've got to build a real business, right? So in our category, some of our competitors are simply just private labeling the sheets that Target makes or Pottery Barn or, or somebody like that, right? They went to those factories and they're not putting anything into R&D necessarily, but they're they're making a nice product that, that is a good value in the marketplace. But they're not inherently bringing anything new or anything innovative to the market beyond a brand name. When I think about retailers or just, you know, young companies in general, they've got to be the ones driving innovation and driving the game, right? And that's where I do think that to an extent, like Dollar Shave Club is a, is a great example of, you know, they focused on the pricing aspect of it, but and now that's been done. So it's going to be really hard for somebody else to say, you know, oh, now I've got a razor that's also cheap, or I've done this or I've done that. But if somebody can come up with a razor that no matter what will never cut you and will never give you razor burn and works way better, um, I think that that's an interesting place in the market where you're bringing back real innovation and improvement to people.
0: Yeah, it does feel like the the low-hanging fruit of just e-commerce as a distribution uh, model or subscription is been picked off. And so the bar is higher if you want to really stand out. Like, if, It seems really hard to create a moat, like a product moat, of creating something that's really differentiated, even more so today than ever before. It feels like as soon as you have a unique product, it's so easy for copycats to emerge. And so is it possible... To create a differentiated product? Does it have to incorporate some really unique technological element or software element or something else to be differentiated?
1: To be a company, it needs to be those things. To be a product, not necessarily. So, I'll use an example. Like, I grew up in marketing at Craft um, and worked on Oreo, among other things. And so, when I was there, someone had a great idea. Like, we can make seasonal spring Oreos or Christmas Oreos, and we were going to put red filling in it or yellow filling. Now, that's not really a great innovation. Nobody really needs it, but people were really happy to see it and have it and consumed it in very large numbers in those key seasons. So it was a very successful line extension, a very successful product. You would not have gone out and created the Yellow Oreo company. you know or or maybe you could, and maybe you could have said, "Look how big Oreo is, mm-hmm. and they are missing the spring season. We're going to create a chocolate sandwich cookie that is geared to the 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 spring season. And we believe it's going to be, you know, and and that look that item probably does fifty million dollars in revenue, right? Like a nice business, right? But it's not, it's not a company.
0: Well, it's it's you're making me think of something that I've never thought of before, which is like Oreo is a platform now, <laughs> because oh my like God. Oreo has. I mean, they've made hundreds of different or thousands, I don't know, of different variations and flavors. And I think yeah. they've been doing this in Japan for a really long time with like Kit Kat and all kinds of other products like that. And it's just like you can't play that playbook unless you have like this item that becomes a platform for flavors or something like that.
1: Well, I think and, and look, I come from the CPG world. So you're saying platform and I call it a brand. And to me, there's like two dozen brands in the world. There's not 8,000 brands. Um, and to me, a brand is something that has such a deep emotional connection with the consumer that the consumers and the brand sort of like you think about concentric circles where there's this happy space in the middle and they can do a lot of things in those areas. So, you know, Oreo is a brand that you hear Oreo, right? And you might have the vision of sitting down with your grandmother and dunking it in milk or whatever it happens to be. That's nostalgic and and it means something to you. So they have the ability to sell crumbs that go in your ice cream, to sell pies, to sell you know whatever else under the Oreo banner because that's a real brand and the brand is bigger than any individual product. In the startup world, we and I'm I'm as guilty as anyone else, even though I come from CBG. You tend to you know thumb your nose a little bit about traditional marketers, right? But. Who does a better job of it than Procter and Gamble? Who does a better job of it than Unilever or Chupa Chups is a great example of mm-hmm. an Asian brand that does a yeah. really good job. And and so, you know, I think that this idea of line extensions, which is like, I mean, if you, if you read the book and you, you know, uh, like a marketing one-on-one line extension, it's going to talk to you about Tide right then and there or Pampers or, or whatever it happens to be from Procter. They mastered it. And These line extensions are really, really smart ways to access more market and do so in a way where where you're bringing the customer along for that journey. And again, it's done over a long period of time. It's not like, okay, Q1, we're going to suddenly disrupt our brand and become this. Q2, we're going to be this. And Q3, we're going to be that. And you're like, what the hell are you now? But a line extension is not a company. And, And so when you bring it all the way back to DTC, you look at how many DTC brands, if you take a step back and say, does this need to exist on its own? it's it's hard to make the case i think that's what's interesting like i've heard it's been a struggle with like pattern brands and and what those guys are doing where they're trying to create a Procter and Gamble of dtc businesses right where they have all these shared services that sit underneath the brands and then they just have marketing teams you know okay you're going to run the t-shirt company you're going to run this and you're going to run that and and it sort of sits together as a conglomerate there's something interesting there as a model whereas again the world just doesn't need another t-shirt brand I mean, and even in my category, the world doesn't need another Sheets brand. They didn't need another Sheets brand when we launched, right? But we took a little bit of a different approach.
0: You mentioned your dad brought Adidas to the U.S. Would, is there anything you, you picked up uh, from him while just kind of growing up watching it or talking to him, you know, while you were uh, growing up trying to understand what, what he was up to?
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I, I was young. I, I more than anything understood that I, at seven years old, could pull off a red velour tracksuit um, <laughs> that I cannot, I can no longer do at forty-two. No, you know, I think it's interesting. So when when he. When he started running Adidas, and again, I, I this is only sort of my anecdotal memories. I, I, trust me, it's like one of the things in life that you wish you have a time machine to go back in time and, and learn. But Adidas at the time had had like in in Germany had licensed the manufacturing of Adidas products to like fifteen different distributors all over the country, and so the first thing he had to do was pull all that together and and and, and buy back out these distributors because they didn't have any consistency in, in the product from you know, the superstars that you might get in California are going to look completely different from the ones in Massachusetts or whatever it happens to be. And, and so, um, I mean, that is one of the things I've, I've, I've always taken from his work and his time there was When Adidas was really unknown, it was the number one shoe brand of the world, but still really unknown in the early 80s in the US, needing to get that consistency in the styling and and the consistency in the way they looked at product insertions and, you know, getting Run DMC and and people like that to wear them and have those sort of really core brand codes come through at every touch point. I mean, it's an interesting learning at a very different time in the world.
0: It seems like just in the way that you describe things, you seem very much like a student of the... You know, the way that other companies have been built and, um, you know, brought to market, expanded. I'm curious if there's companies that you find fascinating, whether for good reasons or bad ones, or books that you felt like were really impactful in helping you understand or build frameworks that help you understand, like, how to bring some of those ideas into what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, I read a ton, and you're probably starting to get this. Like, I'm very fascinated by, you know, the Harvard business cases on, on these sort of multi-generational brands, these companies and brands that have, have been created and stood the test of time. Um, I think that there's just this unbelievable transiency of of companies and brands today that it's just hard. I, I don't identify with it. Um, mm-hmm. and And so, you know, I have spent a lot of time trying to look back and to say, you know what did who do when? And I'll tell you, there's an old advertising book that I love called Ogilvy on Advertising, and David Ogilvy. Right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the book where the quote, you know, half my marketing doesn't work. I'm just not sure which half. And and so, you know, I think that that if you go back to to what I consider sort of the golden age of brands in the '60s and '70s and '80s, when media markets weren't as fragmented, when uh, look, it was a lot easier, and you needed a lot deeper pockets, but it was a lot easier to really build something. The, the difficult part in that point was distribution. Now, distribution is really easy, and 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 cutting through is is hard. But you know, I I do think that there's so many interesting stories of, uh, and and it could be Southwest Airlines, it could be you know, um, Herb Kelleher is just a, a phenomenal story of somebody who zagged when everyone else zigged um, in the airline industry and and sort of the the non-conformity to to his approach uh, in building that company is what made it so unbelievably successful and it changed the industry so so there, there's a lot of things I do look at in terms of what's happened in years past and I, I think I think to a great extent it's reflected in Boland and branch like you look at bull and branch and, and we're probably not as heavily talked about in sort of like, the hipster cool kids startup circles, as some others, but we're probably two and a half three times the size and have been profitable for five straight years. And I'm not saying that that makes me some brilliant entrepreneur. I'll let you say that. I'm only really kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but no, I, I I just think it's like we've we've just taken such a different approach, and yes, we're moving quickly, but we 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 very intentionally stayed on top of our skis and built an organization, infrastructure, and a supply chain and a methodology that we believe will stand the test of time and, and make an impact that certainly will stand the test of time. So.
0: Well, and I think that, um, that goes to kind of a topic that's come back a few times on, on this podcast, which was this, uh, great article in Bloomberg about Bland's, And we've talked about it on several different episodes. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, um, there was something there that I think resonated for a lot of people who are in the, in the industry. And, and part of it, I think is just like, (laughs) in a way just looking at the history of what did companies do in the 60s and 70s is unique. I, I, that doesn't sound like it should be, like just looking at the history of how brands were built. But so many companies, it feels like they're only just sort of looking at their peers and what exists today. And, and that's why you end up with so much similarity and so many companies that feel, frankly, redundant. And, and you've commented on this yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty hot take of on the Bland's article on LinkedIn. I mean, it's you know, it's interesting to me because conformity is the death of building a brand and building a company. And I'm getting to the point where I can look at a brand that that I see, oh, this company raised, and I look at them I'm like, oh, okay, I know which, which which agency did their branding and and their work, and like, there's just no soul to it. It's so clean. It's so blend, right? It, it doesn't have heart. And I think that like, I mean, the truth is it, it always has kind of been that way to an extent, but, but it was clustered around the different big ad agencies. So, you know, you look at, at, uh, look at Leo Burnett, the, the man and the agency. And, and so he created cartoon endorsers, right. For cereals, Tony, the tiger and captain crunch mm-hmm. and, and, and all of these mm-hmm. folks Again, I told you, I could go deep on this, but, but, you know, there was a certain conformity.
0: You should do a, you, I feel like you need like a, uh, yeah, 10 part, uh, masterclass going back in the history of all of this.
1: I don't think anyone would listen, but it would be I would. highly
0: therapeutic for myself. But, <laughs> I but would. if you,
1: but if you think about that, there was an archetype set, okay, we're selling cereal to kids. We need, um, token animal that speaks, right? We need cartoon logo that's going to be set at a 18 degree angle, you know, up to the right. And like, i mean it, it it's pretty amazing and we got a toy in the box right so the, the idea of blending has been happening forever it just used to be a lot more charming than it is now and and so you know again i mean if you look back at at you know, even even Burnett's like cigarette work that they did with the Marlboro man and, and stuff like that, like there was always this sort of assignment of, okay, we've got to create our image of a brand and that we're gonna create something in the image of that brand that's aspirational for the consumer. So we're gonna give the consumer the opportunity to aspire and and get attached to the character, which is a lot easier with a kid to get attached to Tony the Tiger than it is just a frosted flake, right? Um And so and the same thing with smokers, like I'm guessing the Marlboro man was like pretty cool to somebody that that was, you know, looking at, I don't know, smoke smoke cigarettes while their kids were having breakfast. So I think that this idea of blanding will never go away. But a logo does not make a brand. And 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 even like in the case of Tony the Tiger, like frosted flakes somehow, I literally think are just programmed to be delicious to every human, kind of like McDonald's, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could all say McDonald's is gross and you know, or whatever, but like there's something about it that is literally our bodies are programmed to taste it and understand that it's delicious despite what the clown might be doing. And I think that great branding with an inferior product never has worked and it
0: never will work. What is the soul of Bull and Branch? What has it become? Maybe is a better question. I don't think it's funny. I I have a document
1: that I wrote before we even had a company name, the only edit I made was in 2013 before we launched. When I added our company name, in terms of what we want to stand for, and you know, in general, we we stand for this idea that every product we enjoy is made by somebody, and all too often those people don't enjoy any benefit of making that product. And so, to me, especially when I think about what when we we started our business with sheets, and, and now obviously we make a lot of things, but. If you've never slept on a really beautiful luxury set of sheets before, the first time you do, the difference is unbelievably noticeable. When you hold up a white sheet, you know, across the room and hang it on the wall, there's, you know, if if you don't know what to look for in the stitching details and those sorts of things, very hard to tell it apart. You spend a night sleeping in it, better yet, wash it 10 times and spend another night sleeping in it, the difference becomes really, really apparent. And there's a lot of enjoyment that somebody will get out of the fact that every day they are sliding in between these sheets and feeling incredible, right? And saying, wow, this is great. And the idea that that home textiles and textiles in general is one of the worst offenders of human and ecological rights issues everywhere. Like there is sadness after sadness after sadness that goes into making these, these products that are sort of subjectively great to the customer. And, and so... If you purely take the perspective of being a human being and saying, "Okay, let's let's assume," and I, I do believe I don't believe that anybody in the textile industry is intentionally, you know, creating the sort of like you know harmful end products or or marginalizing people on purpose, right? They're just prioritizing the wrong things, or there's a sense of laziness saying, "All right, I'm not I'm going to worry about just what I get and I'm going to sell it. I'm not going to think about that." You're, it's not even intentionally not thinking about it; you just don't think about it. And so for us. Again, having three daughters that we wanted to feel a part of making this company and building this company. You know, when Missy and I started learning the differences that, that could be if you start at a different, if square one is a different square one than everyone else starts with. And then you try to make the right decision by people at every step of the way. You can actually make these beautiful products just as affordable, if not more than are available in the marketplace and do so by doing it a little bit the hard way. You can do so and lift everybody up along, you know along the way. And and to a great extent, we've always felt that Bolin Branch is going is is a great case study for why this is possible in every category under the sun. You know, and and some categories don't have some of the ethical challenges that textiles do. But all too often, we're all accepting a status quo and inheriting ninety percent of a status quo and only putting our twist on ten percent of it. And and so our intent was to put our twist on hundred percent of it and and do so in a way that we would feel really proud of. And as Missy said, she, she'd feel proud of telling her own mother. And I always thought that's, that's a unique way to look at it. And frankly, something that, that, that still it's our value system. This is what we're about. We talk about it all the time, 100%, because I still interview everybody that comes to work for Bull & Branch. If I don't feel that that mission matters to them, I don't care how talented they are. It's just not the right place. For that individual, so we we work really hard to ensure that every single product we make serves a common good, uh, not just the good for the end customer, not just the good for our company, but everybody. or we don't make the product.
0: What's your process for creating accountability around these things, especially because you're a private company you chose to like not have too many investors involved and the incentives of your business, uh, just like your industry are always going towards, you know, maximizing profit margins or doing things using the supply chains that already exist. Like, how did you figure out, there's this term called, have you ever heard the term dead reckoning? No. uh, It's like a naval term about like, you have no, it's like when you're trying to navigate with no bearings, like you don't know where you are, you only know where relative to where you've been. And so it's Mm -hmm. like sometimes you you don't um when you're trying to like kind of push the envelope of what your industry is is doing like you have to create some sort of accountability for yourself and how do you how do you do that if you feel like the rest of the industry doesn't have those standards
1: well you have to create the standards and and you got to write them down but most importantly you have to measure it and you've got to um,
0: what are you measuring? Yeah, what are the things that you're looking at?
1: So, so to me, the starting point, and I'll, I'll use cotton as an example. Uh, when you find out that conventional cotton is sold oftentimes, or, or most often, uh, with the farmer earning below the living wage, right? So, minimum wage is is generally also even below the the, the living wage, which right puts someone below the poverty line. And so, I'll use that as a simple example of what if you went to the cooperatives and the folks that you're working with from a cotton standpoint and says, say, okay, you know, instead of paying the commodity price, I'm going to work with your government and I'm going to work with fair trade as an independent and they're going to set the price that I pay for cotton that puts you above the poverty line. So I'm going to pay probably two and a half times what everybody else is paying you for the cotton. Yeah. And along with that, you know, as we scale, it's the traceability that comes with that. We still secure all of the cotton. Every single PO I can trace back where it was sewn, cut, woven, dyed, picked the farm. And we, we will hold custody across the board. So what we're doing is keeping middlemen out of that process. We have a pure chain of custody. And so I, I, I understand what has been paid to everybody in that process. And then I bring in third-party auditors to also look at it. So and i'm 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 getting a little out there let me explain how 95% of bedding products are are purchased in this company there are us sales offices for really large mills and those sales offices you know they've got their models up on the wall and you pick what you want you can make some customizations but but you know your transactions you're buying a finished good from a sales office that represents a factory right and and you name me the company and i could probably tell you what mill they come from because there's like six that support the whole world and so when you reverse engineer the backside of that, there's no real transparency throughout. And it's it's a case where you know, all right. the sales rep doesn't really know where the cotton's coming from. These are massive factories securing cotton from everywhere. Um, so they're working with dozens and dozens of agents that have access to cotton crops, and they're selling it into the factory. So now you got to go back to those agents and say, where are you getting your cotton from? Okay, well, they're working at these local farms or, or they own farms or whatever it happens to be. And you trace it all the way back and you try to figure out what's this farmer making, what, you know, and, and, it's terrible, right? The, the standards are terrible. I'm not even talking about the ecological or health standards that associate it with. Just the pure economic standards, you've got an entire supply chain that nobody has full control over. And there are very few brands with like Patagonia being one, Prana being another. But there are very, very few brands that approach it from the standpoint of having a full supply chain that is matched with a full chain of custody on the item. So that you can not only ensure that you're paying more to these folks... But the benefit there is actually when you run your own supply chain, your cost of goods is dramatically lower because you've got less of the snakes with their hands in the pockets pulling out their share and marginalizing the people. And that was the happy accident to us as we built our supply chain was realizing, holy cow, we probably have a cost of goods advantage on every luxury betting brand on the planet. And we can still, with strong margins, sell this to a customer at half of what they would otherwise pay.
0: Yeah. And I'm 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 a huge believer in that. That's kind of like the principle of what Lumi is doing with packaging. Yeah, for sure. But I think the question that uh, I hear from certain people is like, how much do consumers really care? <laughs> and, and that's like a very cynical question. But uh, do you have a lens on that or do you have data on that?
1: Look, I, I recognize that part of what makes our sheets as comfortable as they are is the things you can and can't see. Uh, and it what it's what makes me proud of making these products and i think that that question and i know you face it and you guys do it well and you do it right but but that question that most people will say was exactly why every in, industry expert quote unquote that i spoke to before we started was like why would you do this why would you think about sustainability and organic cotton nobody's going to pay for organic cotton nobody cares you know and and the truth is whether they care or don't there's only one way i would make a textile product right and when i look at startups frankly that aren't thinking about sustainability and they're not they're they're like oh yeah we've got this certification it's like dude you don't have a clue what goes on like how much time have you gone over and spent in the developing world and looked eye to eye with the folks that are making your product and realized they're the same as you they want to provide for their families they want health they want healthcare they want to earn a fair wage at the end of the day for their work and like us they also have to work You know, they need the income and yet they're complete, they don't have education in often cases and they're helpless, right? So if you're not going to help them, no one's going to help them because that's just not how it's set up. It's an industry set up around get me the lowest cost at every step of the way. I don't care how you do it. So what you find is that you've got this incredible amount of power, right? Imagine if you're a cotton farmer and you have, you know, however many, 10 acres and you're farming your crop, and and it comes the you know the harvest, and you take it into the literally into like a town square, and you put it on the, the on on the on the scale, and this is actually what happens. You put it on the scale, and it weighs fifty pounds, and they say, "Okay, I'll I'll give you a hundred dollars for that," and you say, "Wait a second, the the current commodity price is three dollars a pound." Well, it rained last night, and I got a lot of cotton from all these people, so I'll, I'll sell it to you for. Hundred, or you could take it home, and they're—they're. They're like, oh, I don't understand, you know, and that. But that is how it happens every day of the week. These farmers get marginalized because they're the ones without the control and without the education. The factory workers get marginalized because if they try to unionize or anything like that, they get fired. There, there's so many issues that exist within this manufacturing cycle, and if you don't break it all apart by starting from scratch, you can't—you can't fix it. And but that's what we did.
0: So from a consumer-facing standpoint, do you think it's a problem that, that consumers don't care about this or that they should care more? Or do you think it's not their job to have to make those decisions that should be implicit to how businesses are making choices?
1: I mean, I think, look, I think in this day and age, businesses do have a responsibility to make choices. I, I, but with that being said, I don't care how pure your beliefs and ethics are. If you don't make a great product in any category, nobody's going to buy it. And nobody should buy it, right? You shouldn't buy a product because it's like, listen, you could buy the really comfortable sweatshirt that equals death and harm for everyone, or you could buy the really uncomfortable one, but you know nobody was hurt. Like, that's a that's a weird spot to be in, right? And you don't even know what the right path is. I think the truth is, is that companies need to take more control over their supply chains. Um, and they they have to Recognize the fact that that we always have a responsibility to stand up for the little guy, you know, not to go all Captain America on you. but once you know and understand what happens and what's going on within your supply chain, now by not changing it, you're an asshole. You know once you learn these things, you can't unlearn them. Um and ignorance is is really not acceptable. but but, look, it's it's not going to happen overnight. However, I think that a brand like Bowl and Branch, being as successful as we are and doing it the way we're doing it, that's the best example we can set for the industry, you know, in in terms of of how to do it. And I'll be honest with you, we spent so much money and so much time building our supply chain. I could give you a list, I probably shouldn't do it live, but I could give you a list of brands that would blow your mind that I have actually sat with and walked through, okay, guys, this is how to build out your supply chain. Here's suppliers to work with. These are cotton sources. This is what you can pay. These are the certifiers you can bring in. This is what you can do. And there's some amazing shifts happening in the marketplace now. And I will do that every day of the week. I want Bow & Branch to be incredibly successful, but I really want this industry to change. And if, if, if we're successful by changing an industry more so than we are from a financial standpoint, so be it. But I, I believe we can we can be both
0: and as you keep expanding how will you like make sure that those values stay strong and that don't you know cutting corners doesn't creep in
1: uh you have to hire really well number one and number two you have to make it a commitment to never let that happen and recognize the risk of it happening and and let me give you a, an example you know when covid really started clamping down and and india was closing if we didn't stick to our standards, we could have had other factories up and running immediately. But I would have rather been out of stock on items. And my whole company recognized that our investors, who now we do have you know, a large private equity sponsor, but they signed up understanding the values that Missy and I built this company on and that they were not only buying into this business, they were buying into those values. We were not going to change our approach just to make sure that we had product for holiday. And you know what it ended up working out and we're fine. But I, I think that sometimes that has to be a bigger priority for you than revenue. And and I always say like we never make any decisions in this business when revenue is the only reason to do something. It's not easy to say. And I think you need to be a little bit old like me and and a little bit brave to do it. I also think that's part of when you know you have a lot of Entrepreneurs that that maybe just don't have as much life experience, it's just very easy to to move with the wind, whichever way it's blowing. And and you know, Misty and I've tried really hard not
0: to do that. You touched on on private equity. Um, last year, you raised a hundred million from El Caterton. That's like a very <laughs> kind of one eighty um, shift in some ways from you know your beginnings, where you're trying to be as as low external capital as possible. How do you? And I think there's a, there's a certain amount of skepticism from entrepreneurs around private equity. Explain a little bit your thought process there and, and why it made sense for you.
1: Well, first of all, you got to have the right partner. Not all private equities are created equal. I, I actually don't think we raise private equity in the traditional sense, in that we brought in a partner in um, And And, you know, look, we're well past the honeymoon being over. And I still absolutely adore those guys. The reason that we brought them in was, frankly, you know, the business was reaching a level of complexity and scale that I felt Missy and I did need partners, right? We we didn't have a board. We needed a board. We needed really strong strategic partners that had, had experience, you know, with the challenges and opportunities of starting to build a business that was taking meaningful share in a category. So... I had, you know, long relationships with with a lot of folks as I always tell entrepreneurs like, take every meeting because you're gonna learn who you'd like to partner with and who you wouldn't. You know, and and so we recognized that we had an opportunity with Bowen Branch to not just create a really nice, really big sheets company, but but to build something that, you know is going to be remembered. It's going to be around for a very, very long time. So by raising a significant amount of capital from a group that is what I would call the definition of patient capital, right? And I am not out, right? They are now my partner in this business. And we are, we are working together to build something truly remarkable. A home goods brand that we believe is going to serve this and the next generation of consumers in a way that nobody else has been able to do. But look, they bring the benefit of a lot of perspective. They've, you know, recently IPO'd Peloton. They've, you know, they were longtime investors in restoration hardware, honest company, and the list goes on and on. They bring so much perspective to the table and so much experience that it just makes us smarter. And look, when you're somebody like me who has been running this business independently. You you go a pretty long time without someone asking you the tough questions that need to be asked on a daily basis. And, and so it's been really healthy and, and really strong. But again, the reason to do that, the reason to raise capital is not to line your own pockets with money. Because if that's your objective, you're going to be miserable as soon as you realize, okay, now I have money, what am I going to do with it? And so I was pretty resolute in in the need to have a strong partner. They were the ones that I, I, I really wanted to work with. And, and we worked out and, you know a, a deal that's going to give us the capital we need to really invest in taking this business to a, a very, very significant scale.
0: What do you hope Bull & Branch looks like in 10 years or 20 years or whatever your horizon is?
1: I've always said this from the very beginning, but I want Bull & Branch to be the first trusted brand in this category. That means, especially in a digital age where, you know, whether you plan to be transparent or not, transparency is going to find you. I want to have a business that that I'm proud of and that my kids are really proud of the fact that their parents built. And more importantly, that, you know, we have tens of thousands of workers and farmers that are really proud to, to support and provide for and, and know that they've been, you know, really well taken care of in the process. So I don't expect Bowling Branch to look a whole lot different than it does right now. The scale may change. Uh it, it may be a little bit more global. The product line may be a little bit broader, but at its core, it should feel exactly as it did when, you know, it was Missy and myself and Robin Ann and Anna uh sitting in a second floor office above a above a old lady clothing store, you know, in the very beginning. So
0: Yeah. Congrats on, on everything you've accomplished so far. I hope people check out BoldenBranch.com, especially um, your impact report, I think was really interesting, uh, really interesting read if people want to dig a little deeper into the supply chain side of things. Anything else you want to point people to?
1: No, I think that's a great place to look. And we try to do as much as we can from a storytelling standpoint across our own social media. But in general, reach out to me on LinkedIn if you ever have questions. And um, yeah, just thrilled that you had me on. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for well-made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.